0: John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth.
1: He became like us, that we might become like him. Let that be our prayer this Christmas and going into the new year. Jesus, Lord of the highest heaven, born as a little baby under a wondrous star. Close to, to a beating, beating heart Jesus, Jesus, lead in a man, Placing a world of danger Come to turn me a stranger Into a child of God Let's do that verse once more Jesus child of the highest heaven born as a little baby under a wondrous star like us crying he takes his first breath
2: with me, please. Lord, we've been sitting under your word all evening, hearing the story told from the creation, through song and prayer. Lord, as we come to this preaching moment, I pray you would continue to open our minds, and soften our hearts to the word that you have for us. May the seed grow deep inside. And grow roots and bear fruit. Amen. Amen. In that same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Throughout this Advent season and then leading up to Christmastide, we have been exploring the different major themes of the season, hope and love and joy. And we kind of missed peace because the fourth Sunday of Advent fell on Christmas Eve and we did Christmas Eve stuff, so I'm going to do peace now because I can't just skip over peace. It's such an important topic. And the angels, as we just heard, declare of Jesus' birth what the, Isaiah, what the prophet Isaiah had alluded to in his prophecy that the rescuer would, would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Peace. Take a moment, if you trust me, even if you don't, just close your eyes and try and imagine either the last time you were really at peace or your ideal situation where you would find peace. This time of year my mind goes to a bay window that I don't have at my house, but I would if I could, with those cushions on it, you know, and it's snowing softly outside. And there's street lamps like the old-fashioned kind in the snow, you know, and I've got a good book, and the fire's going. Probably a glass of wine. Kids are in bed. Corey's reading with me. So peace. That's what pops to my mind. Anyone else? What's a, what's a moment that you were at peace recently or, or a, a, a picture of peace for you? What pops out in your head? Out in the woods by candlelight. Out in the woods by candlelight, which you just did at Holden Village. Awesome, that sounds amazing. Anyone else? What's a peaceful moment for you or situation? Jenny. When Evelyn was born and and you knew your family was complete. Oh, okay, how do you follow that? <laughs> Does someone want to try? Okay, I, that's a good, good enough. Jesus was born in a time period known as the Great Peace, the Pax Romana. It was called the Pax Romana back in the, the days when... when uh, Caesar Augustus ruled. And, and Roman citizens in the late, uh, late BC and early AD were very proud of the Pax Romana. They'd achieved something that hadn't been accomplished on that large of scale, maybe ever. And the man that they venerated as the prince of this peace was named Caesar Augustus. You see, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar took power from the Senate and became the dictator of Rome. Caesar had no son of his own, and so realizing that he also had lots of enemies, he began to look for a successor, and his eye got the attention, or uh, his grandnephew Octavius, Gaius Octavius got Caesar's attention, and Caesar eventually adopted Gaius Octavian as his own son. When Caesar was betrayed and murdered, Rome entered a state of civil war with various generals grasping for power, and Octavian, a young man at this time, entered this civil war and eventually he put down the rebellions one by one and he was named Caesar Augustus. And it was he who organized and is recognized as the creator of what we call the Roman Empire in 27 BC. Now for a people who were living under constant civil war, Augustus and the Pax Romana was good news. Mothers and fathers could rejoice that their sons were not going to die in battle anymore. At least not for a while. Merchants could rejoice that their goods wouldn't be plundered by roaming armies and mercenaries. But where do they see the tax bill that's coming? Information and goods would travel along the Roman roads. Augustus had done it. He had brought peace. But soon, the power went to his head. Augustus began to refer to himself as the son of a god, and for his birthday, each year, he would have heralds go to each town and city around the empire and read, Hark, I bring you good news. Providence has brought into the world Augustus and filled him with a hero's soul for the benefit of mankind." A savior for us and our descendants. He will make wars to cease and order all things well. The epiphany of Caesar has brought the fulfillment of past hopes and dreams. This guy was pretty full of himself, huh? Now here's the question I think we need to ask when we read the Gospel of Luke alongside this historical reality. If Augustus was the savior and purveyor of peace in the known world, if Rome, was this, which was the center of the western and near eastern worlds, was at peace, why would God send the Prince of Peace? Well the answer of course is multifaceted as most important things are, but it's also foundationally simple. The peace of the world, which is what Augustus and Rome had to offer, is not the same thing as the peace of God. Biblical peace, a word called shalom, let's say shalom together, Shalom, it's not merely a cessation of war or a private harmoniousness for a few people. Shalom is primarily right relatedness between human beings and God, and right relatedness between human beings and creation, and right relatedness between human beings and each other, and right relatedness between you and yourself. You cannot have shalom unless you have those four great relationships right. That's peace according to the Bible. The peace of governments, even the best form of government, can't give us shalom. The Pax Romana was only peace for some of the people some of the time. For example, under the Pax Romana, Israel was not at peace. The very fact that Mary and Joseph and everyone else under Roman rule had to travel for a census was proof that they were oppressed, why? That census was to do one thing, it was to count heads. And it wasn't to count heads to see who needed social services, it was to count heads to see how much tax revenue the empire could count on the next year. Every living soul in the Roman empire had to pay a head tax. Under the Pax Romana, non-Roman citizens living in the empire were not at peace. They did not enjoy the same rights and privileges as Romans. They could be taken to court with no evidence. They could be forced into service of any government official. They could be captured and sold as slaves without anyone to defend them. A few minutes ago, I asked us to imagine a time or scenario that we felt peaceful. And in those moments of peacefulness, We might be enjoying a much needed moment of rest and refreshment and there is nothing wrong with that. In fact, those moments of rest and refreshment, those moments of peacefulness are gifts and graces from God. But those moments are not shalom because at any given moment when you or I are feeling our moment of peace, someone else is getting high, someone else is getting exploited, Someone else is starving, someone else is overworking, someone else is committing a crime, someone else is being dehumanized. Yes, there are numerous moments of peacefulness, but when it comes down to it, there is no true, lasting shalom without the Prince of Peace. In his book, Looking Toward a Vision, Walter Brueggemann writes about three ways of thinking about peace that actually kill shalom. The first mistake people make when thinking that, uh, uh, about shalom wrongly is that we think about peace as a private property of the few. Augustus brought peace to Rome at the expense of the masses. The few enjoyed the benefits paid for by the exploited. Peace for a few is not shalom. Shalom means peace for everyone at the same time. Disneyland is kind of the example that comes to mind. In some ways, Disneyland is a foretaste of shalom. There is order and cleanliness and fun and safety and everything is intentional. Everything's immaculate. The the streets are clean. You can see chewing gum on that sidewalk and by the next morning, it's already pressure washed off. Who does that? The landscaping is immaculate. If you like mouse ears everywhere, I guess it's immaculate. But anyway, uh, it's kind of a little foretaste of shalom if that's your thing. But there's also something sinister about Disneyland. As fun and as an inviting it is, it's only fun and inviting for those who can afford it. And even though it's designed for you to have a great time, there's this also a great sense of competition. Like it's designed for you to have a good time, but I'm gonna beat you to that line. Um, and I'm gonna get that fast pass before you because I'm not waiting in line in Guardians of the Galaxy too. I mean, this, that's a long line. So it, it, the food is overpriced. You know, so the, it's, it's only sort of shalom, for some of the people. Augustus offered the peace of Rome for the few. Jesus was born the prince of peace for all. The angels sang of his birth as good news of great joy for all the people. Good news for all doesn't mean anything goes. Like good news, hey, everybody's just a friend of Jesus. But it does mean that whatever your age, your gender, your nationality, your ethnicity, you have the opportunity to repent and to follow Jesus. That is something you couldn't do to be part of the peace of Rome. Like you couldn't just say, ah, oh, I'm gonna become a Roman citizen. Ah, it doesn't work that way. His kingdom does not exclude based on where you are from or how much money you have. The second Shalom killer, according to Brueggemann, is short-sighted solutions to peace. Peace for one generation, for example, the good life for one generation at the expense of a future generation, isn't peace at all, it's criminal. There are many ways we can make life more convenient and comfortable uh, for today that would be a nightmare for future gener- generations. And just to kind of make a light example, let's take the example of your family or you and your roommate or, or you and yourself, right? Let's, let's say that in your house, you just hate doing the dishes and everybody hates doing the dishes. I know this is totally fictitious, so just bear with me, but let's say the arguments break out about who left the dirty dish on the, pl- on the counter, and who left the coffee mug with that little bit of coffee that makes the dark ring that you, know, you have to scrub out that dark ring. You could have just rinsed it with water. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm sure that's never happened to you, but it, let's say all of these arguments happen. Well, at the same time, in your particular family situation, you had an e- economic upturn, and you made a decision as a family, and you said, you know what? This isn't worth it. What we're gonna do from now on is we're gonna get disposable everything. Every meal, we're gonna throw away our plates and our napkins and our forks and our knives and our spoons. Who wants to do the pots and pans? Let's throw those out and get new ones. We can afford it, right? And so maybe you're arguing stops about who does the dishes. Maybe it starts about who takes out all that trash. But you see what I'm saying? Like That might be a short-term solution of peace in your house that would have horribly, horrible consequences in the long-term for everyone else true shalom isn't that cheap and easy. It takes creativity and sacrifice and effort, and it never takes shortcuts. Of course, Jesus didn't look for easy answers. Looks like I'm grabbing this. Jesus was born into a lower-class family in a nation under Roman oppression. After he was baptized, he was tempted in the desert by the Satan. Who claimed, who claimed to offer Jesus all the power and dominion if he would just kneel and worship to him. No cross, no suffering necessary. But Jesus was not short-sighted. He rejected Satan's offer and chose the hard road of obedience and love. He chose the cross, a horrible death, so that you and I and all the world, would have the offer of eternal life and shalom. The third killer of shalom, according to Brueggemann, is giving credit to our governments, our social institutions, even to religious groups, or our best for our best ideas and any peace that we actually do enjoy in our life. The sort of praise is reserved only for Jesus the Prince of Peace. He is quite capable of working in and through groups and governments and individuals and culture, but make no mistake, if something is truly life-giving and shalom-bearing, it is the work of God. This is a great reminder because it prevents us from doing two very dangerous things. First, it prevents us from giving praise that belongs to God, to other human beings or to other human institutions. That's a form of idolatry. And the second thing it does is prevents us from putting our hope and our faith, uh, giving our devotion to human powers, whether it's government or philosophers or pop culture icons or any other source of offering us the good life that is not rooted in Jesus. When you think about it, When you think about it, that is so freeing. The Prince of Peace is not Augustus. He never was. The Prince of Peace is not the president, this one or any other president. The Prince of Peace is not our military might or our economic viability or the success of the Seahawks today. Sorry if you didn't know that. They're not going to the playoffs anyway. Sorry if you didn't know that. And because we cannot find peace We are free from putting our hope in these people and in these institutions. I gotta say too, that this is a challenging thing because when we put our faith in our policies and in our politicians, we can use that as an excuse for not taking personal responsibility. Earlier this year, I spoke at the port hearing down at the waterfront, and I was speaking out in support of building a low barrier shelter for the Lighthouse Mission on Portland. And if you were to poll the average resident of Bellingham, a town that leans hard politically left, you would find many voices in support of extended services for the homeless. Lots of people are vocal and saying, we need to do something, do something. And so we had a solution, but it ended up, when that solution was in certain people's backyard, we didn't like that solution. Nobody wants it in their own backyard. People in polls and surveys are generally in favor of more equitable boundaries for our local schools so that rather than having a few schools that are the haves and a few schools that are the have-nots, we we bend the borders so that we have a more equitable situation. People generally like that when you poll them and ask them what they don't like is when their actual kid has to go to that actual school. We could say the same things about racism and sexism and nationalism Taxes, you name it, we all have good things to say. That's what we do as people in Bellingham. But we have a real problem inside of our hearts of actually making the sacrifices to do anything about it. Jesus put his hope in the justice and the righteousness of the Father. Jesus didn't trust in political power, he didn't trust in religious power. He didn't trust in religious power. I don't trust in religious power. I'm the pastor. I trust in Jesus. That's who we're celebrating. The sermon is about Jesus, not about me and you and how great we can be. Jesus knew how corrupt the hearts of human beings are. And that allowed him to live freely in the world. When you don't have to impress politicians and when you don't have to uh, impress priests to get ahead in the world, you can be free to live and love generously and to critique the powers of the world. But all of this is secondary compared to the shalom Jesus was born to bring, and that is peace with God. Most of our deep-rooted anxieties most of our fears that we have as individual human beings, most of our anger and our apathy and our peacelessness is rooted in not knowing and not trusting that we are the beloved of God. That God loves you. You are loved. Look at the effort that God went in order to show his love for us. He humbled himself and became a human being. And not just any human being, but a poor Jew to an unwed couple in a land oppressed by the Roman Empire. Look at the expense that God invested in reconciling you and I He went to the cross to atone for our sin and our shame and our fear. You are his beloved. And that's not all. He hasn't just left us saved as if that were some sort of stamp that you receive and it sticks on the outside of your skin. You're saved, you're not saved. That's not how it works. He loves you so much that he will spend the rest of your life forming and shaping your character. Through faith in Jesus and baptism into the church, God sends his spirit to dwell in us, to reform us from broken image bearers of God to radiant icons of God. And that means that we are not just recipients of shalom through Jesus, we are agents of shalom. And during Christmastide, we pause and celebrate the fact that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Son of Shalom, was born to make peace. And with great humility and dignity and courage, we must accept that to follow this prince is also to be his agents of shalom in the world. Thank you, Lord, for being born among us, for being the agent of shalom, for reconciling our hearts to God. It's not, Lord, so much what you haven't done yet. It's so much that we have a hard time receiving it. Lord, you know because you were in flesh, you were in this world, you know that the world so tears at us, causes us to live, invites us to live defensively. But I pray for the power of your spirit to penetrate deep into our hearts, to let each of my brothers and sisters and I know and experience your deep and abiding love. And send us out, Lord, as agents of shalom on the earth. Amen.